Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey, music nerds and everybody else. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. So glad you joined me. This is episode 92. We're crawling up there close to 100. That's exciting. My guest for this newly bi-weekly event is Colin Linden, a Canadian legend, but also he's, I mean, he's been living in Nashville for a long time, 20 years or something. So um, he is Canadian, but but a, a lot of people around here know him as a guitarist and producer, and uh, he's basically been a Nashville guy for many, many years. So we're going to talk to Colin, and that's cool. I've known Colin for quite a while, but I haven't had a chance to hang out with him that much since I moved here seven years ago. Uh, I've seen him for a few sessions and um, around at clubs, and I've gone to see him play. He has a weekly gig that's really cool with Whitey Johnson down at the Boogie Bar in Printer's Alley in Nashville. So if you're ever, I actually don't know if he still is doing that or not, but um, he was up until recently. I mean, obviously that's not happening right now, but when things kick back into gear, he may well be doing a weekly gig there. I'm not really sure what their current status is. Anyway, he's great. We had a really good conversation. I feel a little bit bad because we, we just blabbed and like kept blabbing about stuff that was more like historical with him and we didn't even get into his current band and project which is called blackie and the rodeo kings they've got a ton of records out they're a band it's all it's like a bunch of well-known canadian artists came together like 20 some odd years ago and made a record and named themselves after a willie p bennett song who is a, a legendary canadian songwriter 
So this band, Black and the Rodeo Kings, they came together and made a record and it turned into another record and another record. And then I don't know how many records they have, but it's quite a few and they've been together 20 plus years. So it's Colin and Stephen Fearing and Gary Craig and John Diamond and Tom Wilson. And so they're called Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. They have a new record out. We didn't even talk about that band. Uh, it wasn't that I avoided it. It's just we were talking about other stuff. So anyway, that's sort of what happens, and I'm excited for you to hear our conversation. Before we get going, I would like to thank our sponsors that help us out every show, and that is Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, BC, making killer guitar pedals that you should check out, and also Black Mountain Picks, also from Vancouver, BC. And we had a contest going the last few weeks, and Dan Whitehouse did end up contacting me, and he won a Union pedal, which is very exciting. So he's picking one as we speak. We'll get that out to him. And I've got one more little prize to give away from our friends at Black Mountain Picks. They make these crazy spring-loaded thumb picks that are really cool, and I'm using them. And I'm not just saying that. I really am using them. And uh, they're, they kind of do this thing that a thumb pick a regular thumb pick doesn't do and a flat pick. Well, I just don't use flat picks. I haven't used flat picks for 25 years. So I dig them and you should check them out. But also we had a contest to give a couple away and Jesse Griffith who called in, I think last week has uh, won a couple of picks. So you just need to get in touch with me, Jesse, and I will get them sent out to you. All right, let's take care of a little bit of business here and I'll tell you what's going on. We'll take a caller or two and catch up. All right. So first of all, thanks to some of the supporters who have kicked in over the last couple of weeks. I'd just like to thank them personally before we move on. So thank you to Chris Scriven, Gordy Tentries up there in the Yukon. I know Gordy. John Haley, Brian Miller, and Glenn Price. Thank you guys. Uh, your financial support is very helpful and much appreciated. So as you know, this is a listener-supported podcast, and you can get behind it a few ways. And if you're in a position to help out and you're a fan of the show, it would be much appreciated. If, like me, you're wildly out of work and short on cash, then no worries. Sit back and enjoy. Um, so if you head over to makersandshakerspodcast.com, that is our new website, makersandshakerspodcast.com. And up in the top right corner, there's a donate button. You can make a one-time donation there, or you can become a monthly Patreon subscriber. And that can be for as little as a couple bucks a month, and that all helps out. And actually, I started doing a thing. I think I mentioned it last, last episode, but I started doing this thing where for Patreon subscribers, I make a little video every two weeks. Every time an episode of this show comes out, I'll put up a video. And it's just kind of fun. I, I pull up a song that I worked on as a producer usually, but either an engineer or producer or a player sometimes um, and uh, just talk about the song and pull out the tracks and talk about where we did it and how we did it and what happened and stuff like that. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you will get access to those videos and they're kind of fun. So that's how you can support the show. If you have no cash to give and you want to support the show, that's cool too. Head on over. The best thing you can do is head on over to Apple podcasts or iTunes or wherever on the in the Apple universe, you listen to your uh, podcasts and leave a review for the show because that kind of thing helps out a lot as well. So it's been a couple interesting weeks for me, uh, really keeping busy over here doing these Henhouse Express sessions. So that's a couple friends of mine and myself, and we uh, record people's songs from the ground up and mix it within a week. And um, it's pretty fun and, and working out really well. 
Uh, we've had some technical issues, which is like a big struggle that's happening probably with anyone that's working with remote is with remote recording. I mean, the, the technical limitations are still very prevalent and it's hard to get perfect things in place. So whether it's streaming or whether it's file sharing, it's never easy. I don't know. It's mind boggling how hard it can be sometimes. And then sometimes it's totally smooth. Anyway, so we're doing that. I'm also making two records of my own. I don't know how that happened. I just started writing some material with my friend Matt Patershuk up in um, northern Alberta there. And we came up with some cool songs. And I started recording some with um, Gary Craig and some with Jay Belarus, two of my favorite drummers and doing a bunch of stuff. And then I had all these pedal steel instrumentals lying around. And I was like, hey, why don't I make that record that I always wanted to make? And so... I'm just doing it now because I'm here and I have some time to do it and I, all the tracks are there and people like Jay and Gary are at home. They're not touring. They're not in the studio. They want to play music and this is something that's good for us to all do. So that's happening and kind of exciting. What else we got here? Music recommendations. I, I like to give you those. Uh, okay, a new one, the, the new Dylan record. You know, it's sort of an oldie and a newie at the same time, because that, that guy's no spring chicken, I'll tell you. Um, Rough and Rowdy Ways. You know, he's interesting. It seems like every time he comes up with a new album, which is not that often, aside from like, so he did those sort of Sinatra-y kind of records recently, which I quite liked, actually. And sonically, they're incredible. But uh, as far as original music goes, it's been a while. I can't remember the last one. But it seems like what happens with him is he puts out a record and everyone says that's the greatest thing he's ever done. And then they kind of like peter out a little bit. And, and then you realize maybe that wasn't the greatest Dylan record ever. Uh, this one's really cool. Um, it's really groove oriented and pretty bluesy and... I really like it. I'm just sort of digging in. The band is great. I think it's Matt Chamberlain playing drums, who's been on this show. And uh, I recommend it. I think you'll dig it. It's deep. There's lots of wicked grooves on it, and and the sounds are amazing, and Dylan's in fine form. And then uh, I've been listening to a lot of The Faces lately, so I'm going to recommend listening to The Faces. You know that band, right? It's Ron Wood. There's this whole era that's really intriguing to me of like, just pre-Rolling Stones, Ron Wood. So the faces kind of fall into that category. And he has this solo record called I've Got My Own Record to Do. And uh, that's a great one. But the faces stuff with him and Ronnie Lane and Rod Stewart, it's just so good. So check out, I don't know, Long Player is one of my favorite records of theirs. I think it came out in 71 or 72. And it's just raw and basically everything I like about rock and roll. Like it just sounds great engineered by Glenn Johns. Everyone's in fine form. It's loose. It's It's got a lot of hair on it. I like it. So check them out. I think you'll enjoy those records. Okay, on to the show. Colin Linden, great guitar player, producer, multi-instrumentalist. He has produced a whole ton of Canadian roots and blues artists, and he was deeply involved in the Nashville television show here for the last bunch of years, and he has a studio called Pinhead Recorders just a few miles away, and he does a bunch of work there with all kinds of people. And he's a great musician. He's been also very involved in the career of the recording career in particular of Bruce Colburn over the last 25, 30 years, basically producing everything that Bruce has put out. And uh, he puts out solo records as well as as music with the band that I told you about, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. 
So check out Colin's work at colinlinden.com. Of course, there's no tour dates to talk about right now, but I did mention that he used to have a weekly gig down in Printer's Alley in Nashville, and hopefully that is still happening when things get back to normal. So I talked to Colin from a few miles away via Zoom, and we had a great conversation. And without further ado, let's listen to it now. This is my conversation with Colin Linden. Yeah, considering we're about uh, five minutes away from each other, this is uh, it's kind of ironic, I guess, that this is how we're doing it. Yeah, but we're not allowed to get together. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this. It's been a while trying to, trying to line this up. Oh, yeah. And every time that I listen to it, I love it. So I, I'm so glad that you, you know, that you asked me to do it again, because I felt like, oh, gosh, you know, he asked me twice or three times. I couldn't do it. I blew it. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hop right in, because there's uh, a lot of stuff we can sort of catch up a bit. And, and there's a lot of stuff I'd like to ask you about. Um, great. I guess great, great. what I have been asking a lot of people the last couple of weeks is, is what are you doing with your time now? Like, for for a lot of people, surprisingly, they're like loving the time. There's a few people that are like super stressed out <laughs> that I've talked to, and then a couple of people that have just been finding it like so refreshing to have some time where you're not like packing up, getting ready to go to a gig, and all that kind of stuff. Where where's your head well, at? Well, it's sort of a, a little of both. Uh, I've been trying to finish this album that I started. I started an album that was, uh, it didn't even start out to be an album, but it started off as, as recording source music for a television show uh, called Happen Leonard. And uh, uh, I came up with probably 20 different pieces of music that I really liked. And it was because of where the show was set. It was stylistically electric blues stuff. Oh. Uh, stuff that I play all the time, though I've never made a record of that kind of stuff, really. Um, and it was all, it was instrumental, but after I had done it, I thought, you know what, there's probably 10 of these pieces that sound thematically coherent enough to be songs. And I got some, what I thought were at least good lyric ideas for them, but there is a time, uh, a time intensive project because it required a lot of editing mm -hmm. and figuring out how to turn these pieces into songs as well as the time to write the lyrics and come up with sung melodies and do the performances. So uh, this is one thing that I've, uh, that, that I've been doing in this period of time, which has been fantastic. And I'm actually pretty close to finished, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, it'll, by close to finished, I mean like, a, you know, another few weeks work, I think I'll, you know, a couple weeks uh, uh, work I'll be able to, to be done. But also I've been working for about eight months with a, uh, a young singer from California who moved here to Nashville about a year ago, well, a year and a half ago now, uh, and her name is Olivia Wolf, mm -hmm. and she's really good. And uh, we started off doing one song together last summer, and we had such a good time. She said, would you do an EP for me? And I heard her songs, and I really liked them. And so I said, sure, I'd love to do it. Yeah. When she came in to start doing pre-production, she said, you know, I like these songs okay, but really, I have some ideas for songs that I think will be even better. <laughs> I love when that happens. <laughs> she played me her ideas, and they were great. Mm -hmm. And we just immediately started writing those songs. So uh, cut, cutting to the chase now, it's... Uh, you know, about eight months later, and uh, this the quality of songwriting and her uh, artistry has really developed. And we've had a kind of a development 
uh, it's been a, turned into an ongoing development project that I, unlike I've ever had the chance to do in all of these years. So, uh, so I've been working on that, and uh, that's been great. We've been working via Zoom two or three days a week. Oh wow! And it's been it's been great. You know, uh, uh, we've worked together so much. You know, she's spent so much time over here at the studio with Janice and me that uh, that we've been able to, you know, when I set her up on Zoom, she knows exactly where she is. You yeah, know? yeah. She's on the music stand instead of sitting on the chair next to the, <laughs> you know. So we, we managed to actually, in captivity, write a couple really good songs. And I've managed to get vocals from her at her place down in, in Leaper's Fork and, and uh, you know, kind of fly out the tracks to other people. Uh, today and uh, this week, I'm essentially mixing two songs that just started from nothing, you know, started from being in captivity. Yeah. So, uh, so it's, it's, been, it's been good. It's been uh, busy in a good way. And I'm trying to, as, as I think you are too, uh, you know, just you want to play for people. So I've loved the things that you've done, that the John Prine songs, the Six O'Clock News and, oh, and nice. Hello and There. I really enjoyed them. And, and uh, uh, it's just wonderful to be able to put music out there to people. It makes you feel better and it makes the, you know, however many people out there who like what you do, um, you know, know that you're that you care about them and that you love playing, and it ha- doesn't really have anything to do with commerce, it, but it does have to do with your connection to the people who like what you do. So, uh, yeah. I've been doing a fair bit of that too. Yeah, I str- I struggle a bit because some days I just don't feel remotely creative, and um, those days, you know, I like to play guitar every day, so I end up like playing weird scales and stuff like that that I haven't done for years because I just don't know what else to do with myself. And then some days I feel really good and, you know, I'm working on new songs. Well, it's a funny thing because I do think one of the uh, inherent stresses of this uh, very unique situation that we all find ourselves in is that I think that it's not uncommon to fluctuate between having a great deal of energy and almost uh, a need to communicate with people and to connect with the people you love and and connect with your work and just be as creative as you possibly can. And that uh, that is peppered by days where it's hard to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that that's that's not an uncommon, you know, that's not an uncommon occurrence for for creative people right now. Yeah, I, I I talked to Jim Campolongo a couple of days ago uh, for this show, and he was it was actually good to hear something totally similar from him, where he just fe- for this entire time he's felt no creativity at all. He just feels like um, you know he he's sort of developed a new set of fingering exercises to keep his fingers busy, but he's just like not playing, not not doing like live broadcasts or anything. So yeah, it, it really goes from person to person, I guess. I think so. I think yeah. so. So just jumping back to that first thing you were talking about, that sounds really interesting too, that um, the Electric Blues project. So when you say that you're working on that, like, are you, are you taking ideas and then like sending tracks to like Gary and John and stuff to play on uh, or what? I've done that with a couple because there were three songs that, that in addition to the ones that I did for the, uh, for the television show that I thought fit the tone of, uh, of this album. So with those songs, I actually did send send tracks to Gary and Johnny 
Uh, and uh, and that's been great because Johnny's had his home recording situation together for quite a long time. But Gary's just getting it together and he's been doing great. I mean, uh, in the last couple of days, he sent me, we've done three tracks together. And, uh, you know, the sounds are fantastic. And he's so, we've spent 36 years playing together. So we really have uh, just such incredible uh, chemistry and knowledge of how each other plays. So it's, you know, he doesn't have to be looking at me. He's, right. he's, had, the, he's had the misfortune of looking at me for, <laughs> for three and a half decades. So he doesn't really have to know what I look like. Uh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't realize that he had a setup at home. So he's got a thing going there. That's cool. Yeah. And it's, it's been, it's really new. He got a, he found a guy to, uh, uh, uh give him, you know, basically pro tools, tutorials, be a, a pro tools who he can communicate with online, you know, through zoom. So, uh, right on. um, so it's been great. And, you know, he's really risen to the occasion and, uh, um, he did, we did two tracks for Olivia and it was Fantastic. And then we did one track for the blues album, which also was, it was great, you know? And, uh, yeah. uh, so it's, it's been good. It's, I feel like, and I, I feel that way with both, with both projects to some degree, the, uh, the element of isolation, uh, seems to show up in the music somehow or other in, yeah. in, 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 in an interesting way, uh, in just in the performances and that's even with the players it shows up mm-hmm. that way and i find that it's been an interesting thing because i think that it's ultimately it's a, a feeling that a lot of people are going to relate to even if what you're singing about doesn't and all and it sometimes it does but even if yeah. it doesn't have something specifically to do with uh this thing that we're all going through the madness that we're all going through right now yeah i don't know your process i mean i i could guess at at how you work or how you like to work, but um, have you ever done projects remotely before? Like where you're sending off files to, to say drummers and bass players to add, it seems like sort of counterintuitive to the way that your music sounds. So I'm just wondering if that's something you've done before. I have done it quite a bit before. Um, Mm -hmm. It's uh, I've had it, you know, I've played on a lot of things remotely. Yeah, um, me too. As as I'm sure you have, um, I have done that uh, a lot. Not so much with bass and drums, although you know, really, uh, with with Johnny Diamond on bass, you know, uh, there have been times when you know I would uh, I'd be finished with a song, and then after it had uh, you know had some overdubs and had a uh, had it, a little bit more life in it, I would say to Johnny, "Hey, do you want to? Would you want to try this on your Hagstrom, or do you want to try this on?" On uh, you know on a different bass or try it in a different way, and I'll send something to him and he'll play it, and it's just like he's there with me. It's fantastic. Haven't done it that often with drums, although in the last few weeks I did one with Jerry Rowe, and he was you know once again I've worked with Jerry a lot. So when you have a when you have the uh, you know when there's a chemistry and a camaraderie that exists, it does become easier yeah. to do that. And uh, I did that uh, uh, with Jim Hoke a few days ago. He played horns on something, and it was fantastic. I've yeah. done it with uh, my friend, and I'm sure you know him. You've probably worked with him a bunch of Kevin McAndrey. Sure. Um, and Kevin is so, uh, uh, you know, Kevin is so uh, focused in in his way of working. It really is not not much different, you yeah. know. Communicate, yeah. and he and I are great friends. I, and I love <laughs> how he plays. 
but I kind of felt the other day, you know, we, we had communication really at the same level. Uh, with, with bass and drums and with tracks starting from scratch, haven't done it that much. Although this stuff that, you know, that uh, doing with Johnny and Gary a little bit more. I have done stuff where I've started a track with just me and then I've added people, uh-huh. uh, live in person people. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've done that, done that quite a bit over the years. Yeah, I'm going to try it uh, this week, actually. I'm going to do some stuff and send some tracks off just because I have to. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, we'll see how it goes. I don't, I don't love the idea, frankly, but, uh, you know, it's the time we live in. It depends on who you're sending stuff to. One of the things that I found has been an interesting artifact of this time that has been a positive thing is the new sonic standard seems to be the iPhone. Right. You know what I mean? I've seen performances by, you know, Bonnie Raitt and Roseanne Cash and uh, wonderful artists who are so great just singing into their phone, singing and playing in front of their phone. And the sonics of it are, it captures a kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's an intensity or if it's a rawness. That it's is certainly raw, yeah. And I don't think it's unflattering to, to somebody who sings and plays with a lot of soul. Yeah. You brought up this whole thing about camaraderie, and I would like to talk to you about that. Um, and we can go back and talk about other more basic stuff, but, but this idea of playing with people for a long time, that's something that you have, like, it's really interesting to me that you live in Nashville, you're surrounded by great players who you play with and know really well, but you do keep going back to your, this, to John and Gary, John Diamond and Gary Craig, who um, you've played with, as you say, for 36 years now. Uh, Can you talk a bit about the, that intangible uh, camaraderie element that is important to music? Well, I mean, for starters, they're my best friends. And uh, when uh, Johnny and Gary and uh, the Richard Bell, who passed in 2007, who was my best friend, um, uh, when the four of us played together, we had such wonderful times and we had such a fantastic friendship. It really contributed to having a sense of empathy and a sense of freedom in, in what you do. And I, I always find that when you have that kind of freedom just to play the way that you want to play, even if it ends up evolving into something else, I think that it's conducive to people playing their best. And I think it's also conducive to people being comfortable with one another. And uh, I feel just so lucky that I found that I found Johnny and Gary and Richard and John Wynott. And, and I, I remember... I've had a band um, consistently since November of 1977 when I was 17. And uh, um, I've always had a band, even if sometimes we only did a few shows a year. Um, Shortly after I started my band, I began playing with a rhythm section in Toronto who I I had played with a little bit with David Wilcox, uh, Terry Wilkins, and Bucky Berger. And... Those guys were just, they were the bee's knees. They were the best players, I think, in Toronto at the time. And Terry was very helpful to me. Uh, And, you know, he said, you know, we may not be able to do every gig. You might have to get subs sometimes, but we'll we'll do the ones we can and it'll be great. And then you'll find other guys. The circle will get bigger and it will... It'll be a non-exclusive relationship, but it'll be a relationship that can continue to develop. And frankly, I learned how to 
be a band leader by playing with those guys and mm-hmm. and playing with Morgan Davis and and, uh, and of course David Wilcox. But um, uh, you know, being able to be flexible enough that you know, and I remember getting grief from agents and managers. You got to have the same guys on stage every time. And I kind of I was too much of a sucker. Uh, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, too much of a sucker for playing with great players and players who were way beyond my my uh, capabilities at the time. Um, and that you know that's how I knew that that's how you learn is by playing with guys who you can learn from and uh, who, who are who are more experienced or who bring something different. So really, that's really when it all the whole idea of. Uh, you know, the enlarging circle of players yeah. became yeah. very appealing to me and, and has been has been wonderful, which, you know, 36 years later, Gary's, you know, one of my best friends. And we played together on hundreds of records and so many different situations. And Johnny's the new guy in the band still. He's only been with us for uh, 29, 29 years. So um, and, and, and I've played with, you know, as you have, I mean, we've all played with amazing players down here. The circle gets bigger. Uh, yeah. And all that, but I've never, I never for one second thought, oh, I, I you know, uh, I'm gonna stop playing with Johnny and Gary because I'm in Nashville. I never thought it for a second. We've been here 22 years. Yeah, and it says a lot, I think, about your loyalty, but also their abilities, you know, to yeah, and and their loyalty too. You know, they right. they you know they'll if if the uh, if the project is a, a good project. Even if it, if it's a well funded project, you know, I'll, it'll be great for everybody. And if it's not, but if it's worthwhile, they'll, you know, they. I hope I'm not saying anything bad about them. <laughs> <laughs> no, they only work for the they'll top for dollar shit. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they've been so great to me in terms of, uh, you know, way way more than I could ever say. You know. Yeah, yeah. Talking about Terry Wilkins and like having having some mentorship. You grew up in Toronto, and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the the Toronto music scene that you grew up in, and some of those guys. But also your your like earliest um, live experiences in the in the Toronto scene. Well, I actually grew up in White Plains, New York, as a oh, little kid. Yeah, yeah, I lived there. My I was born in Toronto, and when I was one, my family moved to White Plains, so it's the first home I remember. And we lived there for a little over nine years, and my folks had split up by that point, and I came back to Toronto um, with my mom, mm-hmm. and then my brothers uh, followed. Uh, I, I have two older brothers. One is still with us, and uh, um, I, they came up a year later, or about 10 months later, and uh, my first experience is hearing live music, the first concert I ever went to was actually when I was living in White Plains. It was August 23rd, 1968. And it was Jimi Hendrix's experience with uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin, the Chambers Brothers, and the Soft Machine at the Singer Bowl Auditorium. Shit. It was amazing. And you know the coolest thing is Jimmy's show is available on YouTube. Really? And I've seen it again. And it was just like I remembered. It was exactly like I remembered. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, what took you there? Like, were you a fan already when you were just a little Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was a huge fan of Jimmy's and of, okay. of, of, of music generally. Um, we, uh, we had a, a cousin live with us for, for a while when I was maybe three, four years old. And uh, he was a great music lover. He had uh, Everly Brothers records and Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly. 
And uh, my folks loved Johnny Cash. One of the first mm-hmm. records I remember was the, the fabulous Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, when you have older brothers, it kind of gives you a uh, it gives you an entree into a bit of a more yeah. sophist- sophisticated world. So uh, I saw a number of concerts uh, when I was eight and nine. And then when I was nine, the last year that I lived in White Plains, the nine turning ten, there was a theater in Portchester, New York, which has subsequently reopened in the last few years, called the Capitol Theater, uh, 149 Westchester Avenue, Portchester, New York. The phone number was area code 914-939-5876. <laughs> and I befriended, I befriended the, the guys in the box office as a little kid, and I would call them up every day and you know, ask about what's coming out now, what records are coming out, and who's playing at the Capitol. And I saw a ton of shows there. I saw James Taylor. I saw Pink Floyd. I saw Santana. I wow. saw The Grateful Dead a couple of times. Um, you know, I saw The Kinks. You know, uh, really a, an incredible amount of music. I saw in a period of this is all like before you're 11 years old. Yeah, yeah. It was the year that I was the year I turned 10. I started going there in February of 1970, and then uh, we moved back to Toronto in November of 1970, and they had concerts every weekend. And my mom knew, you know, they had an early show and a late show, like Fillmore did. But uh-huh. White, uh, White Plains was, you know, really only about a 15-minute drive from Porchester. So, you know, and, and the guys at the box office all knew me, and whether it was smart or not, and I thank, my, I thank heaven every day that I had the mother that I had, because she would drop me off. Um, <laughs> and sometimes my, my brothers would go to the shows sometimes, but I went a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, and I went on my own a lot. Uh, I remember one show was Van Morrison with the Flying Burrito Brothers opening. We sat front oh, row to see Graham Parsons. And also, like, seeing Santana, John Lee Hooker opened the show. Uh, with James Taylor, Joanne Kelly opened the show. There was a fantastic show, April the 9th, 1970, uh, just a week before I turned 10, which was Johnny Winter and Taj Mahal with Jesse Ed Davis playing guitar. Music that still resonates so strongly with me so it was fantastic when when i came up to toronto my mom and i came up in november of 1970 and then my brothers came up they were living with my dad in puerto rico and my brothers just came up just to see the house that we had rented and to visit with us uh the weekend after we had moved to canada and uh we found out that there was a coffee house on Yorkville Avenue called the Riverboat. So me and my brothers went to the Riverboat the first weekend that we were all in Canada. And once again, it became like, a, it was a godsend for me. And uh, yeah, that place was a great venue, right? It, it, it was, all kinds of good shows. it was fantastic. I mean, so many shows that were absolutely life changing for me. In the summer of 1971, Chris Christopherson played there for, I believe three weeks, I believe the last two weeks of July and held over for the first week of August. Three, and it like was a three week every night a, run. Uh, five nights a week. Holy shit! Week. Mondays were off. Uh, I, I maybe it maybe two weeks, and he was held over for uh, for the second of those two. But I believe it was a two week run, held over for a third because wow. he he was just starting to happen, and and so many people came out to be guests. You know, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Steve Goodman, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, Ronnie Hawkins. It was such an entree to a fantastic thing, and of course. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the people who they were talking about a lot then was John Prine, and John yeah. played there for the first time in February of 1972, and my brothers and I were some of the only people there. 
The first night Steve Goodman played there, me and my brothers were actually literally the only three people in the house. <laughs> so, you know, we get to know them as fans, as kids, and yeah. uh, uh, and continue to follow them as fans. And as, you know, as I became a, uh, a player, you know, I quit school when I was 16 and left home. And I was playing in the coffee houses and started playing in some of the festivals. So I got to, you know, those guys continue to encourage me and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, cheer me on and, uh, inspire me, uh, as a kid and then as an adult. And, uh, were you, were you already playing guitar at that point when you were 10 or 11? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, I was playing enough that I could strum and accompany myself and I learned a lot of songs. Um, when I was, uh, I guess after I had started performing, I started performing in the summer that I, I was 12 uh, at Mariposa at an open stage, and John Bryan was in the audience. And wow. he already knew me, and I, I said something funny, at least that he thought was funny. I said, I was trying to imitate Howlin' Wolf, who was 62 years old at the time. And I said, uh, when I left New York two years ago, I was 10. Now I'm 62. So I grew 52 years in two years, and if that ain't the blues, tell me what is. And... <laughs> John Prime remembered that his whole life. And every time that, you know, we would uh, uh, see each other and there'd be somebody around who didn't know me or something, he would tell that story of seeing me wow. as a kid. And uh, um, um, so what uh, was like, what was a Colin Linden performance like in 1972? Like, what were you doing? Howlin' Wolf songs mostly. Um, oh, okay. Once in a while, I would do like a Sonny Terry and Brian McGee song because I would see them. And from the very first time I met the Wolf, which was November 27th, 1971, uh, at the Colonial Tavern in Toronto, from the first time that I met him, um, um, you know, he said to me as a kid, he said, if you want to learn this stuff, listen to who I listen to. And I said, you know, I had already kind of started reading about blues and, uh, you know, knowing that, uh, knowing about Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson, but he really, you know, he told me about these people because they're people he knew. And uh, it was it was really fantastic. So I dug in as deep as I possibly could. And then after I had been performing for not that long, maybe a few months, I was playing at a coffee house called Fiddler's Green on Eglinton Avenue. Um, and uh, uh, that was the first time I met Leon Redbone. I, uh, I did a guest set when Leon was the feature artist, uh, and I heard him play, you know, Blind Blake stuff, and he was playing Robert Johnson stuff at that time, and and it was amazing to see somebody play that. And uh, the guys at Fiddler's Green, uh, who were very encouraging and good to me when I was a kid, uh, you know, said, you know, you should think about learning how to finger pick because that's what those guys all did. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Chris Whiteley, who I'm sure you were friendly with, and I, uh, sure. yeah, and I, I'm friendly with Chris. You know, I was a 13-year-old kid uh, by this point, you know, and uh, when I first heard the original Sloth Band in person and met them, and Chris was so kind, as he still is, and he said, well, you know, finger-picking is just go boom, 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 with your thumb, and then just sort of work in the syncopation with your finger in between. And it, it made such sense, the way That's he described it. it. And the way that he described <laughs> it, it just made great sense. And uh, so I started trying to learn how to finger pick. And Do you remember some of the recordings that, that you sat down and actually like would have been cornerstone ones for you for actually oh, learning that style? Absolutely. Mississippi John Hurt stuff. I, uh, you know, Candyman and uh, uh, um, a few others, uh, uh, you know, my impersonation of Lead Belly doing Easy Rider. You know, that was pretty early on for me. 
Were you getting into the blood, the, the blind Blake stuff, the more complex stuff? Or, it, or? It, I was listening to it. Uh, Reverend Gary Davis, I listened to very early on. Uh, yeah. But I met somebody uh, just before I turned uh, 14 who uh, is still a great friend of mine to this day, who really took a lot of time with me. And his name is John Thibodeau. And uh, he had uh, he was a great finger picker and a really wonderful songwriter to it. He had a beautiful, very coherent way of playing. He played with a great deal of soul, and he was tremendous. And he had a very clean approach playing with just his thumb and one finger. Uh-huh. And he was he was a wonderful teacher. He was a teacher actually, but he never kind of uh, you know charged me for lessons. I just go over on a Saturday afternoon. And we'd sit around and listen to records, and he would show me something, and I would spend the week just, you know, learning it as, as much as I could. And that involved learning Police Dog Blues by Blind Blake and the Open okay. D Open D tuning. And yeah. then he ha- he had John had a few other songs that he had learned uh, in Open G tuning, and he had made up some beautiful pieces in those tunings. And he had he knew some Reverend Gary Davis stuff, and I mean John is a tremendously accomplished uh, ragtime based blues guitar player uh and he was really you know and he's such a good teacher that he could show things to me in a very coherent way and ken whiteley showed me a lot of stuff and larry johnson who was the protege of reverend gary davis came to toronto a number of times around then and also was very good at you know it was very kind to show me stuff and then when i was 14 i met david wilcox and everything changed uh in what way like what did he do for you well, he opened up the idea that listening to and digging into country blues could be a conduit for listening to and playing other stuff. And he also, okay. I mean, to, to, to uh, I, you know, you and me both love slide guitar so much. And he was and is really, I think, one of the greatest slide players in the world. One of the greatest, to my taste, when I heard him play slide guitar i kind of thought i want to spend the rest of my life doing that mm-hmm. and and uh, you know he showed me a couple of a couple of basic things was he already a recording artist by that he was not yeah okay. although I, I that's a bit of a misnomer he was not as a solo artist but he had already played on some records he was already he okay. had already played uh, with ian and sylvia and great speckled bird and he had played on some of their records he had done an ian and sylvia album without the great speckled bird that was actually called, I believe, Ian and Sylvia with David Wilcox. Um, and he was a tremendous accompanist to singer-songwriters. And he was, at the time that I met him, he was in a local band. He had lived in Woodstock, New York already for a while, playing with Ian and Sylvia. And, you know, being you know, a fantastic local band there, I never heard them, but I heard some tapes of them uh, called Juke. And they were very popular in Woodstock and... and um, he had already developed a lot of stuff uh, that was really in-depth. And he had moved back to Toronto and was in a group called the Rhythm Rockets. And the great thing about the Rhythm Rockets, and in a lot of ways, I think they defined where the Toronto music scene was going. You know, they had a, a great a guy named Dennis Martin, who was a great country singer, who, uh, you know, who sang uh, country songs. And they had, uh, at one point, Morgan Davis was in the band, and Morgan sang blues. And, yeah. and they just, they, they had a very eclectic mix of roots music long before anyone thought of a term like, you know, really 40 years before anyone thought of a term like Americana, Americana. music. But yeah. essentially it was the same, 
And remember, back then, roots music was part of the fabric of pop music. It was, you know, the Wild Chapatulas and Professor Longhair were releasing records on major labels, as were Ry Cooter and Randy Newman and Bonnie Raitt. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it was a tremendous time. That was, that was one strain and a real strong strain, and the band, of course, uh, of, uh, of pop music. So they were, what the Ribbon Rockets did was the sort of more eclectic nature of it, and they were very irreverent and had a wonderful spirit in what they did. I only saw them play a few times, but I first met David when they were, you know, uh, um, when they were playing, and, and, uh, and I kind of thought to myself, this guy, you know, um, is really doing, you know, I think that we related to each other. You know, I think that he, he had been a player when he was a kid, and I knew that. And so I think there was just on a personal level, it was, he, he, was, he was great to me. He was, he really, uh, was he the first guy that kind of hipped you to the idea of being an accompanist? Yeah, uh, it was, he was one of those guys. Although back then there were, there were, he was one of the first that I knew, you know, who else was a really, really good one was my brother, Jay. Oh, um, Jay would, Jay would back because Jay is such a, you know, he is such a natural musician. He, you know, he can fit in in any, he can, he can sit down on any instrument and, pick out something. He can think of four different harmonies to sing, you know, the conventional ones and then the unusual one, you know, he'll, he, he is such a, such a deep listener and, uh, such an incredible natural musician. It was, uh, uh, if he would be sitting around with his other friends who were in their late teens, he would be the one who would be able to back everybody up. And he ended up becoming an accompanist for uh, a number of years to a singer songwriter named Jack Sheckman who was signed to Columbia Records for a little while and is still out there. I think he calls himself, his performing name is Jack Gabriel and lives okay. in Colorado, I think, and is still in touch with my brother son. But Jay was a really good accompanist. And there were some other guys out there who were really good. Um, a guy named Trevor Veach played with, from Ottawa, played with a singer-songwriter named Tom Rush. In Chris Christopherson's band, he had a great guitar player named Stephen Bruton. And Stephen, yeah. once, once again, Stephen also played like a guy who was just locked in with the singer, songwriter, and, uh, um, and, uh, and he was really good. And there were some local guys in Toronto, too. A guy who had been in bands in the early 60s in Toronto named Tommy Graham, backed up a singer-songwriter who's still around, thank heaven, named Brent Titcomb. Yeah. And uh, uh, Tommy was a great accompanist. But David was sort of at another level. In just in that he was so incredibly facile, he was really gifted, he was knowledgeable about so many different kinds of music, he was really able to bring a tremendous amount to bear as an accompanist, and I, I admired that uh, a whole lot. And uh, I ended up, you know, becoming an accompanist to people largely because I, I love to play so much, and, right. uh, you know, and, and I had, you know, I had heard people in that role a lot and it was one i felt really comfortable with and you did join wilcox's band right back in those days i did i was in his band not for very long initially uh but i was in his band for a while when i was 16 what was your role like within because he's such a great guitar player like what what were you brought in to do he had back then uh, had, uh, in in the early years of his own bands he uh the format that he worked with was two guitars bass and drums so okay. there was a uh, uh uh, it was primarily the role of, I guess, a rhythm guitarist, okay. but he was so uh, intricate in his arrangements that he would really orchestrate parts for people to play. 
And it, it, what it was, it gave me an education on some of what people can do when they are uh, a second guitar player in a band, too. So right. it wasn't just a matter of playing conventional rhythm, although that did happen. You know, you know, if we were playing a Chuck Berry song, you go bum, 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 yep. bum. If you're playing an R&B song, you go bank, bank. You know, all of those things that you learn how to do when you're in that role as a second guitarist. But he also came up with some very, very unique parts tailored to his songs. And, and lear- learning those parts was really a, a, great, a great education. And, you know, he would, you know, I would play a few solos a night or whoever would be uh, his guitar player. At that, in, in that era, uh, a fellow named David Baxter who is uh, still in Toronto, yeah, uh, yeah, an excellent, an excellent guitarist as well. Um, he was in the band for longer than anyone else for a good while. Kit Johnson, uh, who lives in Calgary now, uh, played guitar. And then after, after a while, Kit evolved into playing bass with David and he played with them for, you know, decades and, uh, you know, off and on. And, and so, uh, so, the role of the second guitar player was was that, but it was a really educational one. And just getting a chance to hear that sound. I mean, I would go and hear him play every night before I was in the band, and I would go and hear him play every night after yeah. I was in the band too. So, what was the story with that? Like, you joined his band, and then and then did you? It just didn't work out, or like, why were you? Why did you not stick with that project for a while? Well, it was one of those things. I mean, I was sixteen, and I think that. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, it was one of those times, it was a, kind of a really popular band in town, and I think that he, he was trying to figure out a way to grow, uh, and, uh, you know, was trying a few things out, and I think I was one of the things that uh, okay. that got tried out for yeah. a little while, and uh, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, unbelievably thankful that I had that opportunity. And then, you know, a couple of years later, after I had already sort of started my own bands, and I would still take, you still do quite a lot of side network, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would, he would call me from time to time, you know, if he was doing a gig and he wanted to have a second guitar player, he would yeah. call me for those things. And we actually did quite a few gigs, uh, just the two of us. There was a place called the groaning board in Toronto. That was, uh, that was a, like an acoustic kind of, uh, it was sort of a health foodie kind of restaurant that had music six nights a week. And, and it was a good, it was a good gig too. And, um, he would, uh, you know, if he was doing a solo gig and I happened to be around, he would say, come and play, you know, and, oh, cool. and, uh, and, uh, so, you know, I would, I'd back him up, you know, so that, uh, that, you know, if he wanted to take solos and stuff, I do his songs and, uh, and all that. And, you know, we would do, you know, we'd clown around and do some funny songs yeah. and, and, uh, um, you know, it was really, it was really great. He was, he was, I love that guy. We're talking 70s Toronto here. What was the scene like? Like, it must have been a great time to be in Toronto. It was a fantastic time to be in Toronto. I'm so fortunate that I lived there then and that I came of age, really, in that period of time. That sense of eclecticism mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, reaching for something unique uh, and having personality and humor uh, and not just being cover bands, uh, you know, yep. conventional cover bands, was really the most popular bands in Toronto were that. And there were some great original bands who were coming up. Uh, you know, I think about Rough Trade and, and you know, Dominic Triano and people like yeah. that were playing in the, in, the, in the band scene. But also there was an incredible acoustic music scene that, that uh, came up. 
I guess earlier than that in the 60s, but it really came to life uh, in the 70s. And uh, uh, I owe a tremendous amount to being around the coffee houses in the 70s. Um, uh, you know, of course, Ken and Chris Whiteley and Tom Evans, the original Sloth Band, were around uh, doing, you know, interesting and eclectic cover music uh, that nobody would have thought yeah. of. Leon Redbone was around in the earlier part of that period of time. He left. He left in about '73 to become Leon. Well, I mean, he was already Leon, but to have the world uh, love love what he did. But there was a, a scene that really uh, evolved in Ontario. You know, a lot of these towns in Ontario would have one coffee house, and there would be like one or two great songwriters in London, Ontario. Stan Rogers was living in London and uh, he, he, you know, was de developing something that was totally unique to himself. And in Stan's closet was one of the greatest artists I ever heard of or ever knew in my life. And that was Willie P. Bennett. Mm -hmm. And uh, Willie was writing songs like nobody else in Canada. And that in Brent Titcomb and David Essig, and it was a fantastic scene. And that kind of bubbled underneath a whole level of sort of Canadian singer-songwriters who were stars. And I'm thinking, uh, especially more than anyone else, Bruce Coburn. Sure, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, who were really, you know, you know the, the peers of, the, you know, of Gordon Lightfoot and Leonard Cohen, maybe a little bit younger, you know, 10 or 15 years younger, and Neil Young and uh, Joni Mitchell and Robbie Robertson, uh, the generation, like one generation younger than those guys. But I think of uh, really the True North sound, which, uh, yeah. you know, True North Records, which I think of really typified by Bruce Coburn and Murray McLaughlin, who were so good that they, you know, went from playing coffee houses to selling out Massey Hall and developing a national following. And those guys, and uh, to some degree, uh, even though it, uh, kind of came in uh, a bit of a different pathway to get there. I think of Jesse Winchester as being a little sure. bit in that, in that world too. Was he around Toronto a lot? Not that much, but he would play in Toronto two or three times a year, sometimes okay. solo, sometimes with a band. I yeah. actually remember seeing him play at the, uh, at the colonial tavern, the same place that I saw Howlin' Wolf when I was a kid. And he played there with a trio, just him and bass and drums. And he played uh, Wurlitzer and guitar, electric guitar. Awesome. So um, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on, and uh, um, it was very much a cooperative scene. You know, you'd mm -hmm. the same singer-songwriters who'd be playing in the coffee houses. Uh, you know, there there was a place in Hamilton called the Night Two. There was another place there called Campbell's, Lahibula in Ottawa. There was one place called the Scarecrow in uh, in Kingston, Ontario. Um, in London, they had a place called Smales Pace that evolved into a place called Change of Pace. And uh, so throughout Ontario, there were all of these places, and they kind of melded together with, you know, if, if one of those artists wanted to have a band, uh, they would play in the bar, you know, and, and they'd, you know, they'd move to, uh, move to a different venue. And that became, as the 70s moved into the 80s, uh, that became a little more common. And uh, I started playing with Willie P. Bennett when Willie wanted to put together a band and uh, he got approached by the Brunswick House in Toronto to do a week-long show, Willie P. Bennett with a band. And Willie was already, even at that point, kind of a legend because he was somewhat reclusive in his own way. And mm -hmm. um, 
the people who booked him in wanted him to use the established musicians who were great players on the scene, you know, who everybody knew. And, and Willie said, no, I want to use Colin Linden. I'll get him to put together a band. And that was in 1982. I was 22. And uh, that was, a, you know, an incredibly life-changing experience, but also kind of bridged the gap between backing up a singer-songwriter and being a lead guitar player in a band. Had you worked with him prior to that a bunch? I hadn't worked with him, but I knew him from when I was 13. He used to, his first ever gig in Toronto was at a fantastic coffee house uh, uh, in North York, not, not far, you know, in the suburbs, not far from, you know, a seven minute drive from where I was living. And it was a coffee house called Shires and it was run by Ken Whiteley and a guy named Doc, Doc McLean. And uh, Doc uh, was, uh, you know, Back then, he was, he was a guitar player already to some degree, but he was a really accomplished blues harmonica player. And he and I played together, uh, you know, the years that I was 15, 16. He and I traveled through the South together the year I was 15. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and uh, uh, Shires was a fantastic coffee house. Uh, my wife worked there before she was before I even knew her. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. She, she, she stopped working there around the time I started going there. So even though we've been together for 37 years, if, if I had started going to that coffee house a month earlier, we would have <laughs> known each other for 10 years longer. But oh, um, So Willie's first ever gig in Toronto was November 22nd, 1973 at Shires. And me and my brother Jay and maybe three other people were the audience there that night. We had heard Willie's song White Line covered by David Whiffen and loved it. So we went to hear him because we loved that song so much. So, you know, I uh, knew him as a fan. And then I would sit in with him from time to time when he would have a band. He'd call me up to get up and play a song or two with him Yeah. Uh, when he'd play at the Horseshoe or something. I remember doing that when I was 16. And, uh, um, so we were, we were, we were quite friendly, you know, as I got to be in my later teens, then he came out to hear me play with my own band at a place called the fire hall, uh, in London, Ontario. And, uh, one of the first places I ever heard Tom Wilson play with the band, by the way. Nice. Um, and, uh, um, uh, Will was just, he really liked the band a lot and he, it was just a trio and he liked what, what we were doing. So he said, yeah. I want you guys to be my band, you know, I want you, or whoever you want to play with, do it, but I want you to be, I want you to do it with me. So, and, and did that turn into a regular thing with him? Oh yeah. I played, I, I always said that I played guitar. I was his guitar player for the rest of his life. Uh, even though really for the last 10 years, we only played together a few times, but <laughs> in, in the eighties, even though I always had my own band, Nobody really cared about me having my own band. So for me, you know, in a practical sense, uh, getting a chance to be a sideman was a, a wonderful thing. And I played together. Uh, I played with Willie a lot. We played, uh-huh. um, we played with a band quite frequently, but way more. We played just as a duo, just him and duo. me. Tell me what you learned from a guy like him, because he, he was a great sideman as well. Like I got to know him in the later years when he was playing mandolin for, for Fred Eaglesmith. In fact, like being the idiot that I am, I didn't even know who Willie P was at that point. More people than, were like that. More people yeah. were like that, Steve. And, and so you, you must've like, he must've taught you some cool stuff, like just some conceptual or mind altering ways to approach, uh, backing a songwriter up. Actually at that point, he hadn't gotten to that point. Okay. But I can tell you one thing. He really, really encouraged me to go there. Nice. He really encouraged me to go there. And, 
you know, it was in the days where, where, you know, you get, you know, I got a boss, the E 200, the, the, the only affordable rack mount digital delay. And it had some really stupid effects on it. You know, a stupid hold effect, you know, uh-huh. that was kind of like the predecessor to looping. Yeah. And, and if you played something and then you reached over and you, you know, you would, uh, turn up the feedback and it would go on for a while and then you'd turn the time up for it and it would start sounding like it came from outer space. Willie loved all that shit. So he sure. really he really encouraged me to go there. Nice. And uh, uh, and I, I think I, I learned more about being a uh, sideman and being uh, free from some of the constraints of what a conventional sideman would be. That's a That's a big lesson. It was, and yeah. and uh, but it was it was something that I think Will always told me that he that uh, uh, he always wanted to do that, you know, and so I think when he you know he, for him playing with Fred gave him an opportunity to to just develop that which he did to a tremendous degree, and yeah, I think, he was fantastic, and I think Will was never. He was always comfortable being a songwriter. He was always comfortable on stage. He was a wonderful performer. But I don't think he was necessarily that comfortable being the focus of people's attention. And, okay. and I don't think he was always that comfortable, uh, you know, having, you know, people, you know, say, oh, you're the greatest. You know, it was, I think that he was just, I think he was more comfortable being a step away from the, you know, from center stage. So side manning was actually a, a, a thing that he was drawn to. Yeah, I think he really liked doing that. And I think he was always just driven to do, to, I think that he was dr- driven by the idea that if he could learn something from other artists, it would make him a better artist too. Like at one point, kind of in the middle of him becoming a well-known songwriter, in Canada at least, he, he joined a bluegrass band, he joined the Dixie Flyers. Right. And he played with them for four or five years because he wanted to learn how to play the mandolin. He didn't know how to play mandolin. And so awesome. he thought, okay, okay, what am I going to do to play mandolin? Well, these guys are a bluegrass band from London, Ontario. They don't have a mandolin player, so they'll let me play with them. So, <laughs> and, you know, he did, he did that. And he became a, a totally unique, highly yeah. unconventional, but brilliant yeah. mandolin player. Another. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. guy that you've done a, a ton of side manning for over the years is, is Bruce Colburn. Maybe you could just tell me a little bit about um, how you hooked up with him. And I don't know if it goes way back to the, to the 70s in Toronto or if it was more of a recent thing than that. But um, maybe just tell me a bit about your experiences with him. Well, I knew Bruce Coburn uh, 
as a fan, you know, I would go and I remember I actually have the ticket stub um, from him playing on my 11th birthday at the high school near where I grew up in Victoria Park Secondary School. And I still have the ticket stub of going to see him. April 16, 1971. I said hello to him and, you know, kind of nodded my head when I ran into him in the hall where he was getting a Pepsi. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, and, but I did meet him when I was 12 at Mariposa, actually, that very first weekend that I went to Mariposa and started performing. Uh, he, I just saw him doing a dulcimer workshop, and he was sitting on a, on a bench. It's something that actually that I, he remembers, too, from that time. And, and uh, he, was, he was Bruce. He was great and uh, um, approachable and, and kind and soft-spoken uh, and brilliant. Uh, and I was always a fan, and I would go and see him every time he would come and play in Toronto. And then as I get, you know, began doing some of the same festivals as him, we'd get a chance to hang out a little bit more, you know, pass a guitar around, and I'd play something that he would you know, find amusing, and he would play me something that would knock my socks off. And uh, um, he was always really encouraging to me. You know, he was encouraging to me to, uh, you know, I was bemoaning the fact that I wasn't a very good flat picker. You know, and he said, don't worry about that. You can play anything you want. I'll play with a pick with your fingers. I remember him saying that to me when I was 17, and it was a saving grace. And uh, um, I made a record. My first major label record uh, came out in 1988, and it was called When the Spirit Comes. And it had uh, uh, Rick Danko and Garth Hudson from the band. Uh, Rick was on quite a bit of it, and Garth was on a couple songs. And Bruce heard a song from that on the radio, and he pulled over in his car. He really liked it. Called uh, the, the song called "When the Spirit Comes," and I had heard from mutual friends that he had really liked that record, and, and it really meant a lot to me that he had, you know, that he that thought it was something that was cool, and uh, uh, so it was it was a great thing. Um, I did a record with uh, um, an artist named Scott Dibble um, for Warner Brothers. One of the first records I was really involved in as a band leader co-writer, uh, guitar player, sideman. And the record was produced by Jonathan Goldsmith, who had produced a bunch of Bruce's records. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, Bruce had, this was in 1991, Bruce had gone and uh, gotten signed to Columbia Records in America and uh, had uh, uh, T-Bone Burnett produce his first album, a brilliant record called Nothing But a Burning Light, really one of the very yeah. greatest Bruce records ever. And Bruce wanted to put together a band to support that record. And he thought, okay, well, you know, I I hardly have ever played with another guitar player. Uh, And Jonathan had spent the summer working with me. And and Bruce had talked to Jonathan about that. And, you know, Jonathan suggested that he give me a call. And uh, Bruce called me up in August of 1991. And it was the, it changed my life. Um, And uh, uh, he said, do you want to be my guitar player? And, you know, uh, and I said, of course. <laughs> and, and he said, well, come and listen to the material and see. And I heard it, which, and I understand exactly, you know, why I did, why somebody like me got the call. Because uh, it really did suit both having another guitar player and, uh, and the style of music. You know, the, it was a, a, quite a rootsy record. And he said, yeah. who do you want to play with? You know, find guys who you want to play with and they'll be fine with me. And I, I, of course, you know, suggested uh, Richard Bell and Johnny Diamond and Gary Craig. And uh, Gary was still playing with Anne Marie, so it was sort of a non-starter. So we got uh, my friend Mish Puglio, who had played with uh, Bruce on Stealing Fire to play drums, and uh, and Johnny and Richard, and we were the band. And uh, and I said to Bruce, "Do you do you want to audition them?" And Bruce said, "No, no. you know, if if you like them, they'll be great." 
And it, it was really one of just the fact that he was, and he was not flip about it, but he just had faith. He had faith that the direction that he was going in, asking me to do that and to help him put the band together, was the right one. And it was a real, a great lesson, and uh, it was a life changing experience. Uh, not, not the least of which is because uh, um, opening the tour was a fantastic artist named Sam Phillips, who at the time was married to T-Bone Burnett. And Sam traveled with us. Sam had, T-Bone had become friends with Bruce. Mm -hmm. And Sam had traveled with us, um, uh, you know, on the, on the bus. And we became fast friends. And she's, of course, an incredible artist. And every few days, T-Bone would come out on the road. And he and I just became great friends. And that, and that, okay. that you know, long before we ever really worked together. We spent a lot of time, you know, drinking scotch and playing guitar together. And, and you know, uh, 20, 29 years later, he's been, you know, the greatest mentor I've had in my adult life. And he's been fantastic to me, you know? And uh, so it was such a, a life-changing experience, and of course. And then it continued on with Bruce and I've been working with him. I, you talked about Bruce and I'm, I'm uh, uh, digressing as I often do, but no, it's good. It's good. I, I was in it. I was in his band for four years, and then yeah. and then he asked me to produce uh, Charity of Night for him, and that was 1996. And with one exception, that Jonathan Goldsmith uh, did one record with him. I've done all of Bruce's records since. How do you navigate the guitar world between you and him? Like, obviously, his finger picking is is very intricate and very like methodically done he's like one of the most consistent players i've ever seen what's your like how do you approach playing with him so that you can augment that and kind of stay out of his way i thought it was a really important thing for me to learn how to make coffee really well <laughs> 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 it was uh, that was really the thing i thought man if i make everybody cappuccinos and lattes <laughs> after sound check every night i'll have a gig <laughs> <laughs> It's a good skill, but it was it was really important. Uh, Bruce was very, uh, um, you know, because I had studied his playing for such a long time, and I was a finger picker, kind of a different style player, uh, but a finger picker. If he wanted to go a certain way, I could kind of follow him, and if he wanted me to kind of take over his part at a certain point, I could jump in and play with him and find ways to you know to uh, you know to to weave in and out of what he was doing sometimes it was very very easy to be a fifth wheel with his playing but i think that he was very conscious of utilizing the best that the players had to offer so when i was in the band we actually came up with a lot of things and he was so so conscious of making the uh, the the arrangement of a particular song be really flattered by the group of people he was playing with. He was not particularly uh, interested in us copying the arrangements that had been on the records. He was really, uh, it wasn't that he said, ah, let's do something else. I'm sick of that. But I think that he was really open to it evolving into a way that our band could play it. And that was a really, that was a really good thing. And uh, it was, it, it was, a, I think uh, it was a great thing. And uh, Richard, brought a tremendous amount to it of course and uh, yeah. uh but but i i i was i played to bruce's right i always like being to the to the front person's right side uh -huh. so i can really see what they're doing and get the body language of their left hand and their right hand yeah and i just locked in as best as i could there's some nice footage of him and i we would play as a duo from time to time mm -hmm. mostly it was the band but we played as a duo on austin city limits 
Yeah, a few people have seen that, and 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 uh, it really I, there are a couple things that we do on that that I kind of find you know that's sort of Bruce and me really listening to each other and playing together and really enjoying each other's playing and mm-hmm. a very happy memory. And of course, in producing the records, uh, some of the records I play a fair bit on. Over the last few records, I've played quite a bit more. Uh, but on the first couple albums, I, uh, you know, on the first couple albums I produced for him, I didn't play very much at all. Yeah, you know, I yeah. just, uh, you know, just leave so uh, yeah. And I think he, you know, sometimes some of the most interesting stuff um, on uh, the Breakfast in New Orleans Dinner and Timbuktu record. Some of my mm-hmm. favorite things were I would kind of set up a goofy guitar sound, um, yeah. something that I think would that he would like and and would be evocative of you know a different kind of thing to play a solo on or to play a part on. And I would just come up, you know, I'd plug it through my rack and my effects and come up with a bunch of stupid stuff and then hand him the guitar and he would nice. play it. And it was, yeah. a, it was actually a great way to collaborate because it was him being throwing himself into the fire with something that he didn't particularly, uh, um, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't come to that point by design. Is there a, a track on that record that kind of personifies that the most? Actually, there is uh, the, a song called When You, uh, when you Give It Away. Uh, he, uh, um, he plays uh, his basic part. Uh, he plays on electric and, uh, um, you know, the, his main part. But the solo, he, pl- he plays through my rig. Okay. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it was, it was, uh, it, it, I think he got a kick out of it. It's good to be a fish out of water sometimes. It is. It is. Yeah. And, uh, I remember producing an album actually for David Wilcox or, uh, around that same time. And it was something that I kind of liked doing uh, with other guitar players. I remember uh, with, uh, on, on a couple songs on, on David's record, um, I would play the fills with a guitar sound uh, under verse one, and then I'd hand him the guitar, and he'd play the fills with the same sound okay. in verse two. Wow, you know, cool. so, so there would be a certain kind of variety that would come about. But sonically tied together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, it's fun playing with other guitar players. I, I know. Yeah. I know. Can we just talk about a couple of people that you mentioned? Uh, sure. Going, going back a, l- a little further, uh, you mentioned playing with Danko and, and Garth. And I know those guys meant a lot to you. And, and you were involved in, in their uh, record in the 90s as well as the band. Um, can you talk a little bit about the band guys and maybe particularly Danko? Oh, well, Rick was such a wonderful guy. He was, uh, uh, he was really, really smart and really intuitive. But he was also, you know, he kind of had this sort of country bumpkin approach to life, the way that he would talk. And he was, uh, but he was just very, he had incredible instincts and he was really, had a mother wit that was really smart. And he was an incredible singer. He sang beautifully in tune and his phrasing was tremendous. And he was so musical he gave, he had so much heart and he was just, he was just a beautiful, beautiful guy. I had opened for the band, uh, me and Gary, and at the time a bass player named Tom Griffiths was playing, and John Wynott was playing keyboards with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had opened for them October 29th, 1985, at the uh, at the Diamond Club, um, and it was uh, just a few months before uh, Richard Manuel died, and uh, it was Richard yeah. Manuel, Rick, Garth, Levon, and a great guitar player who actually called me since I've been on the line with you. 
we're still great friends. One of my dearest friends, uh, Jim Weeder. And uh, it was the first time I had met Jimmy and uh, we opened for them and they were so nice to us. I felt like they were like our older brothers from the same scene that we came up on. Sure. We were coming up on in the 70s and 80s and they came up in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. But we, we had a kind of a familial feeling. And of course, you know, Rick made everybody feel like they were family. All those guys did. I mean, Levon was such a wonderful guy, too. I mean, Garth Garth uh, is... uh, uh, Sort of on his own planet. (laughs) Is on his own planet, but there's never been a sweeter, kinder person on the planet than Garth Hudson, you know? And Richard Manuel was was incredibly polite and incredibly shy, and... uh, uh, But they were... They made us feel so at home, and that kind of being... I always listen to their music, even when even when really there was, you know, I wasn't listening to anything but 20s and 30s blues, I still always listened to the band. And I always listened, you know, I always loved what they did. And, and uh, um, um, we were in the middle of making a record when, when I opened for them, and it changed our course hmm. of making that record. It was a record called The Immortals. And it changed the course of what we did for the next couple of years, Ended up getting signed to AM to do, though, When the Spirit Comes record. And uh, I had already written the material profoundly inspired by what they were doing and really wanting to have a certain kind of sonic approach mm-hmm. that was very different than what was going on in the 1980s. And John Wynott and I, John Wynott and I produced the record together, and we really, you know, we were very conscious of wanting it to sound like a cedar box and not, not like a crystal chandelier. Or okay. crystal cha- chalice, you know. It was it was really conscious of wanting to make roots sounding records at a period of time where there weren't that many out there, in the, especially in Canada. Um, so, summer of 1987, I'm in Edmonton at the Edmonton Folk Festival, hired kind of last minute to play guitar with Yank Rochelle, who I played with, and a guy named Tony Bird, who I played with, and Holger Peterson was running the festival, and Holger asked me to come out and do a little bit of stuff on my own, do some workshops. And back up some other people. Randy Newman's supposed to play there. Randy Newman gets sick, and they bring in Rick Danko to fill in for him. Wow. And 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 I would have loved to have seen Randy Newman, but I was over the moon when I heard that Rick <laughs> was going to be there. And I didn't know if he'd remember me from the one time that I had met him. We ended up on a workshop stage together, and he's playing Mystery Train. I'm playing I'm playing my Stratocaster backing up Tony Bird. And... Uh, uh, He's playing Mystery Train, and he looks over at me and nods at me to play the solo, and I play a solo, and at the end of the solo, he looks over at me and says, Toronto! <laughs> <laughs> and he put two to to get, you know, remembered me from opening for them. Yeah. And, and, and I was, we had, already, we had already gotten the deal with A&M. We hadn't started tracking, but I so wanted to ask Rick if he would sing on the record with me. And, yeah. and I said to him, you know, I ended up hanging out with him quite a bit that weekend and I said do you ever do sessions and, and he said well you know I never really thought of myself as a, a session player but I always like helping out a friend and <laughs> so he ended up singing on five songs on that record yeah and it was through him that you know that we got to to uh, uh, work with Garth and we went down to Woodstock and recorded Garth and immediately became fast friends with, with him as well and uh, and uh, got back to Toronto, and uh, Janice and I, you know, we had been down there and had just the most wonderful time. 
and I uh, uh, check my, you know, my uh, Codafone, you know, answering machine because I see I got some messages. And the first message I, I get is, "Hey, Colin, it's Rick Danko. Give me a call, buddy." And uh, uh, and I called him up, and he said, "You know, I want to do some gigs with you. I think that'd be really great. Why don't I come up there and do some gigs, and we can play with your band?" And we started doing that in uh, March of 1988. Uh, was the first time we had done, we did two nights at the Horseshoe, just uh, before when the Spirit Comes album came out. And we would regularly work together. You know, he'd come up to Canada and he would call us uh, to come down. To he was still uh, living in Woodstock at the time. Yeah, he was living in Woodstock, and uh, um, you know he, you know he would we, Janice and I stayed stayed with him and his wife a number of times and. And when they got back together, um, the band, when they first started uh, getting back together, uh, they, uh, Rick called me up and said, why don't you come down and write some songs? We need some songs. We need people around us who, uh, who are going to help us come up with songs and play with us. So in June of 1990, I went down for a week and, and uh, you know, we, we played, we almost always had something coming up you know two months down the line or a month down the line or four months down the line you know a festival here or a gig here and there and and uh, um uh, so we ended up working on some material and of course jimmy and i became you know jimmy and i became great friends and it was through those guys that i met richard bell which changed my life totally and uh oh you met him through them yeah i met him actually janice and i we're so broke, we didn't get a chance to go for a honeymoon until we had been married for a year and a half. So yeah. in, in or almost a year and a half, in June of 1989, Janice and I went to Woodstock for our honeymoon and stayed with Rick and Elizabeth Danko. Okay. And one night we were staying there, Rick said, uh, hey, you better go down to Tinker Street tonight. Jimmy Weider's playing there and Richard Bell's playing keyboards with him. He's the greatest keyboard player you'll ever hear. You can make sounds like horns. You can play a whole horn section with the keyboards. <laughs> and so Janice and I, neither one of us knew how to drive. So Rick dropped us off at Tinker Street at the little bar in downtown Woodstock. And uh, um, we heard this unbelievable band. And the guy playing keyboards was, was had Richard was wearing this long coat. And he was wearing a hat. And he was wearing dark glasses to cover up the fact that he had two black eyes. And he had a Band-Aid over his so He had been in a car accident. Oh, and, shit. Uh, and he looked like a real tough customer. Uh huh. And uh, of course, you know, Jimmy introduced us, and Richard knew that we were in Toronto. And Richard said, "You know, uh, I'm from Toronto. My family's there. I'm thinking strongly of moving back there. Can I give you a call if I go up there?" Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, "Of course, it'd be fantastic." Because he was a great, you know, I, I, you know, he he wasn't a menacing guy. He was he was the best friend I ever had, ultimately. But um, he was the sweetest guy, and. Uh, uh, and I said, you know, of course, can't please give a call. And uh, uh, he called me up as soon as he came back, to, as soon as he, he moved to Toronto in December of 89 and mm-hmm. called me up. And we were inseparable friends and played together on at least 100 records, you know, yeah. from, from then on. So, so I had, and, and of course, in uh, March of 1992, when Richard was still playing with Bruce, he got a call from Garth saying, we're gonna we're gonna go out and do some gigs. We'd <laughs> like you to I'd like you to come and be the other keyboard player with us. So that's how Richard ended up joining the band, okay. and uh, and the Jericho album they made that summer, 
And were you around for that Jericho? I sure was. I sure was. Um, uh, They recorded Remedy, though, my song, the Jimmy I wrote. They recorded that before I got there. Um, Rick went into rehab for a few weeks that summer, and they asked me to fill in for him in the band because they had a bunch of gigs lined up. They got another guy. They got a guy named Frank Campbell to play bass, and they got me to do Rick's vocal parts because Rick and I had a great simpatico singing together. Uh-huh. So I, I ended up playing oh, quite a few gigs with them, you know, probably eight or ten gigs with them that summer, I think. Um, and I was working on my first album for Columbia called Saturday North at the Nine. Yeah. And um, I really wanted those guys to be on it. And Levon and I made a bit of an arrangement, uh, a bit of a deal, you know, because uh, he really wanted to have the people who are around for the writing and the, the kind of support group to be there for the making of the record. And uh, so uh, uh, we made a bit of a barter deal that I could uh, do the overdubs for my album in the morning before people got up. And when the band guys started showing up at about two or three in the afternoon, we'd evolve into, you know, we just work on songs from Jericho after that. Oh, wow. And we'd work on songs from, you know, whoever was around. It would be Rick or Garth or Richard did all of his playing on Saturday North and I in that album at Levon's place, uh, you know, in those mornings. And I stayed at the barn, and yeah. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to drive, so uh, <laughs> I would get up at eight in the morning, and I would have. There was no phone there, and no cell phones, so I'd be sort of sitting around. Then, then eventually, when Jimmy and Richard, uh, Richard would be staying over at Jimmy's, and uh, when they got up, they'd come and get me, and we'd go have breakfast together at about ten or eleven. And uh, I spent a good deal, uh, you know, several weeks that summer sleeping in Levon's barn. Amazing. And uh, playing Levon's little uh, Martin mandolin. I wanted to learn how to play mandolin myself. So yeah. I learned everything that I know about playing the mandolin, which is not very much, <laughs> in that couple of weeks of, uh, of being in Levon's barn. That's so cool, man. So what was the, like, what was the morale of the band like at that point? Like, they, they seemed to me as though they were just always, like, super tight buddies right to the end, uh, you know, uh, Robbie Robertson aside, it seemed like that core, those three guys were like inseparable musicians. Was it like that really? It was, although it was, it was in, in a somewhat unconventional way because, you know, Garth is so taciturn and, and quiet. Rick was so bubbly and outgoing and Levon was the coolest, most charming erudite. He was everything that came out of Levon's mouth was poetry. He was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was just, he made you feel like you were the most important person. He was the most charming person you could ever meet, you know? And, and yes, they really loved each other a lot and you could tell that, but it wasn't, it wasn't always like they were, uh, you know, and they did hang out together a lot, but it wasn't, they didn't have the kind of, you know, friendship like Johnny and Gary and I do, you know, right. but they, I think maybe at different points in their lives they did, but they were all such unique characters uh-huh. Uh, but they had an absolutely inseparable bond, and they. Yeah. It was it was a funny thing, you know. Sometimes uh, one one of the gigs we did was um, opening for uh, the Almond Brothers in Saratoga Springs at the big uh, outdoor. The raceway thing there. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I ended up actually uh, playing there with Bob Dylan actually in 2013. Okay. It was the only other time I had played there, and uh, uh, and Garth came out and sat in with. Wilco that night. It was an interesting thing okay. uh, when I played with Bob. But uh, 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 we played the show, and um, I was, you know, I was still kind of in the middle of working on my record, so I didn't really want to hang around. So all of the other guys in the band uh, stayed around to hear the Almond Brothers. But on the bus, on the tour bus, 
Garth went back with the crew, and uh, uh, Rick and Levon had been bickering about something or other all week. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of like, uh, you know, typical people who've been, you know, hanging out together for a really long time. Brothers. And like brothers, yeah. And Richard had just come from Toronto and had discovered some old pictures that he had of Rick and Levon. You know, that he had, you know, taken years before, he'd gotten years before that those guys hadn't seen. One of the greatest things about Richard Bell was that he he would he would not stand on he would he kind of wouldn't stand for people bullshitting at all. He he would he would be oblivious to the fact that these two guys are pissed off at one another. And he'd say, Hey, come here. And we ended up on the bus ride back to Woodstock from Saratoga Springs. It was just Richard and me and Rick and Levon. And you know, and they were kind of, you know, scowling at each other <laughs> all week. And then Richard, of course, got all these pictures and and laid them out on the on the on the table in the lounge of the bus and called them both over and said, You gotta come here, see these pictures, come and see these pictures. So they kind of yeah. grudgingly went over and they started looking at the pictures and they started laughing their heads off. And oh and I got such a strong feeling of what their friendship was. And it was just yeah. it was just a That's really all it took. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And one other memory I have of that is I remember playing with them after Jericho had come out. When they would come to Toronto, uh, I would, uh, not every time, I, maybe every time they would come and play, uh, they would get me to come up and do a few songs with them. Um, you know, do, do Remedy with them and do a few others. Um, yeah. And I remember they were staying, oh, I forget what hotel, I was the Royal York they were staying at and, uh, and hanging out and having a, a drink uh, after after the show, and 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 Levon saying to me, you know, we used to always go for Chinese. That was the only thing you could get late at night. And uh, um, man, I'd love to get. I'm hungry. I wouldn't mind going to get some Chinese food. And Rick, you know, Rick said, yeah, yeah. Call on though a good place to go. And <laughs> and and I thought of a place uh, that was on Dundas called the Watto that we used to go to sometimes at Dundas and Elizabeth. And I told them about that, and just the two of them went out, Rick and Levon, for Chinese food yeah. that night. No entourage, no other people hanging out. The two of them went out, and they had a fantastic time together. I remember asking nice. Rick about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that they had uh, it's a long-winded, a long-winded. They had answer. their moments, but yeah, well, they 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 loved each other, and yeah. uh, and uh, they were fiercely loyal to one another, and had a deep, deep, deep understanding of one another. Yeah. You mentioned the Dylan gig and I, I'd love to hear about that. I don't, I don't even know if you're allowed to talk about it or what the scoop is, but it was like a, it was like a whirlwind experience. I'm sure. It was fantastic. I played, uh, I played in the band for a few weeks. I finished a tour, um, in uh, 2013, uh, of your and, own. Uh, no, I finished uh, He was the, doing a thing called the Americanorama. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And it was Bob and it was Wilco and my morning jacket and a different, uh, a different um, opener for different legs of the tour. I think uh, um, uh, Richard Thompson did the first show that I did, and a guy named Ryan Bingham did did the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and it was it was great. And uh, and I I, uh, uh, I played with them for about three weeks, and uh, I'm still friends with the guys in the band and. Bob was nothing but great to me. He was very, very nice. And, and, uh, um, did it, did it just come out of the blue? Like how, how was it a phone call in the middle of some, something else? Or did you know 
a long time in advance that it was coming or how did that work? No, it was, it was funny thing. It was something that I had wanted to do and my name had been thrown into the hat a few times over the years, but it was, it was the gig I wanted to do more than any other. You know, I'd always really, I, you know, I love his music so much and I sure. always felt, felt like the, you know, the greatest backing up the greatest songwriter, the greatest artist, I think, in my opinion, in any medium of my lifetime unquestionably and uh uh um and uh uh he had had another guitar player playing with him who left the band kind of in a hurry um in the middle of this tour and uh, uh and he was in nashville and uh he uh, he had uh, he was familiar with and was a fan of my friend buddy miller mm-hmm. and buddy came out to the show and and bob said uh, you know we're on our own for a while. Do you want to come out and play a guitar with us? And Buddy had just become the executive music producer on the Nashville TV show right. at the time. And so he said, uh, he said, I can't do it now, but I have a friend who I think would do a good job. And that's how I got the gig. And I, I, uh, um, I, the first gig that I did, I went, I heard a couple of gigs yeah. and they had gotten Charlie Sexton to fill in uh, for a he little would- bit. He was out of the band at the time. He was out of the band at the time. Uh, you know, he okay. had uh, taken taken time off from the band ultimately, but he was out of the band at the time. And uh, they had gotten him to fill in. They brought me up to listen to two shows, um, and so I got to get a bit of the lay of the land. But I didn't get a chance to uh, rehearse at all, and I didn't get a chance to do a sound check even. Wow. And the first gig that I did was in Toronto at the Molson Amphitheater. Oh my God! And. Uh, uh, and it was it was fantastic, and and uh, my brother was there, and and Janice flew up for it, and uh, uh, Johnny and Gary were there, and uh, my friend Paul Reddick and Tommy Wilson came out for it, and I didn't even know if I was going to really be playing, mm-hmm. uh, but I ended up, you know, they sent you know they sent for me to get my gear sent up there the week before, so I sent up the gear and. Um, uh, my rehearsal was before we went on. Bob looked at me and said, "Do your best." <laughs> <laughs> were, were you given song titles and keys and whatnot, or was it just? I like- had I had done some research and okay. I had been prepped. Some Tony Garnier uh, has been kind of the MD uh, yep. for that. I don't know if it's formal even, but I think it is probably. And uh, he is a bass player and an yes. absolutely wonderful musician. And he really understood how to do the gig and uh, gave me a lot of very specifics uh, about the Zen of the gig, I think. And uh, um, was there, um, was there anything that he told you that like really helped you get through that kind of pressure cooker situation? So many things, so many things he told me that were great, but I mean, fundamentally the guys in the band were so wonderful to me and, and Bob is, He's an unbelievable musician, an unbelievable band leader, and a fantastic singer. And, you know, he kind of tells you what you need to know just by being him. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think that it was an unusual thing to just have a player come up there because uh, uh, he lays it down yeah. so strong that, uh, that uh, it, tells you, it tells you what you need to know. And it's an experience I'll cherish always. Was it a set that that varied a bunch from night to night, or was it like wildly different? It, yeah. I wouldn't say it was wildly different, but uh, uh, you know there were some things that we played every night, but uh, there were different ones every night too. 
And, uh, and uh, um, one of the most fun things was that uh, there would be a song that he would pick usually that day that he would ask Jim James and uh, Ryan Bingham and uh, Jeff Tweedy to come up for. Uh-huh. And we learned some real interesting songs uh, for that, you know. Um, songs that you wouldn't even think, like uh, 12 Gates of the City by Reverend Gary Davis. Oh, wow. uh, we did one night, the first night, actually, that I played with yeah. them and it, and it was great and it was it was a fantastic thing so it was a it was a wonderful experience well listen man there's so much stuff we could talk about but I, i've taken a, up a ton of your time i'm i'm we, such a blabber about steve forget no me. It's, it's that's the whole point <laughs> i mean we haven't really talked about you know like blackie and the rodeo kings and all that stuff uh <laughs> well we'll have to do we'll have to do like part two at some point but okay um, maybe can you just tell me a little bit about your um, like I know, like as a producer, you've, you've evolved over the years and, and made so many great records. And, um, you mentioned T-Bone as being somebody that, that, that you hold in the highest regard in that sense. And maybe you could just sort of give me a, 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 a the lowdown of working with him and what it's meant to you over the years and, and what you learned from working for a guy like that. Well, T-Bone is, is, you know, he's, you know, he's like no other. I mean, he's so fantastic. And he's got such a wonderful spirit. He he is so aware of bringing honor to, to to music when you play music. He loves music so much, and he knows so much music. He's listened to so much, and he's absorbed in real depth. And he's a brilliant guy. And he's I mean he's probably the greatest rhythm guitar player I've ever played with. Oh, um, and he's really uh, you know he's absolutely beautiful musician and singer and songwriter himself. Yeah. And I, I really love what he does. And that does inform what he does as a producer as well. But he, I think instinctively and I, not only instinctively, but he's really experienced and he's, he kind of understands when it's time to step in and do something when it's time to sit back, you know, sometimes he'll sit back on a couch and, you know, be looking at his laptop, writing emails and, and, People will sort things out. And then when he gets up and sits at the board, he'll make a couple little moves and everything will sound 10 times better. And and he'll let you come to your own conclusions about what you should be doing. And then he'll give you a couple of tips that will not necessarily even be, uh, don't play that chord, play this chord. He'll give you an idea in in a very poetic and beautiful and humorous way of how you should be thinking about something and it will form the part that you come up with. Okay. So, so great. He'll, he'll let you come to that point. And then when it comes time from time to time to get in the clenches and say, don't play that inversion of G. It sounds too much like this, play it like this. He'll have an opinion about something that is very simple that will be absolutely game changing to to the the way that a song will turn out. He really understands what's important and what's not important and how to get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he makes you feel when you are playing on one of his records, he makes you feel like you are the only person in the world who can do the thing that he's looking for. That's and right. and he has complete confidence that you'll be that you that you will rise to whatever challenge comes there. He has he has a he puts a great he instills you with a great deal of faith. The fact that you're there is enough. Yeah, it's a funny thing that you that you say that because I remember playing a session for him. This is about uh, 20 years ago now for uh, uh, Divine Secrets of the Yeah Yeah Sisterhood, that film. And 
the band that he had put together for it was Larry Taylor and Stephen Hodges, who you know. Yep. And uh, me and um, uh, Anne Savoy, the Cajun, Cajun singer, and her son, uh, uh, Joel, on fiddle. And yep. that was the band for this particular, and it was, you know, we did, we did a couple of Cajun tunes, and we did, we did a few interesting things. It turned out really well. It's on the soundtrack album for that. But I remember I, I was still, I had an apartment in Toronto, and we were just about to put an offer on a house. And uh, I was coming down uh, from Toronto, driving down with, with my great friend, Charlie Ferguson. And I remember asking him, what do you want me to bring for the session? Uh, and he said, said, just bring the love in your heart. And, uh, and he said, because uh, you know what? What it comes down to is it's just your physical presence in the room. It's the sound that your fingers make on the strings in between when you decide what you're going to play. That's the stuff that's the most important thing. And uh, it was. Uh, that's a pretty it, special thing to hear from a producer. It was great. It was great. And, yeah. and, and, you know, when he, when he, he'll set up a band in a certain way that everyone will be able to kind of enjoy each other's company. Mm-hmm. And that really means a lot. And, and he'll kind of walk out onto the floor and just sort of visit everybody's station and, uh, you know, not even to sort of check in and say, Hey, are you doing okay here? But he'll, uh, he'll be checking that out of course too, but yeah. he'll, He'll just uh, just make everyone feel at home in their spot, yeah. and it was fantastic. I remember when we did that session; nobody used headphones. We recorded at Santa Maria A, and uh, uh, everybody just sat in a circle and played, and it was it was fantastic. He seems to me to be more of like a big picture guy, where he's looking at the thing as a whole. Does he get into like guitar sounds and stuff like that, or does he just leave that to you? He. When it's necessary, he'll get in to details as deep as anybody I've ever been okay. around. Um, uh, and he'll, you know, he'll, uh, uh, he'll be very, you know, very particular about what, you know, one of the things that I've spent a long time in the last 30 years doing, but especially in the last, you know, maybe 22, 23 years doing is combining acoustic and electric sounds. Yeah. And he and I have spent quite a bit of time, you know, sort of digging into those things in real depth uh-huh. to get the right the right combination of things, especially you know, if I'm playing my dobro or one of my other guitars that has two outputs. Yeah, you know, we'll spend a lot of time going in on something. You know, um, if you know, so sometimes it'll be you know just what I come out with. He'll say, "Oh, that's great. Yeah, let's, let's go there." But that, I remember on certain songs, you know. Him really, you know, when it comes time, when, when details are needed, he'll go really deep in them. And but if, if they're not, he'll he'll understand that and know how to, you know. There's there's no agenda at all. It's just making it's just serving the spirit of the music. You continue to work with him still, right? Like, yeah, he's, it's, you know, he's not making as many records anymore. I guess. Yeah, but, I um, haven't I haven't done as much with him in the last few years. I worked with him a tremendous amount in the first part of the 2010s. Actually, really, from from 2000 to maybe 2015, I worked with him quite a lot, and you know now I, I have you know I have breakfast with him, <laughs> you know yeah. more often more often than I work with him. But you know uh, we play you know when we get together we play guitar together, and uh, I I love uh, one of my favorite gigs as a sideman that I've ever gotten to do is the the times that I've gotten to back him up, I bet. you know for his own thing. So uh, I hope that one day he'll want to do more of that because and then want me to play with him because yeah. I love playing with him so much. He's, yeah, he's such, got a, such great songs. 
great songs and his pocket is just so gigantic hmm. you can there's just you feel completely comfortable playing with him it's just so musical I, I love playing with him so much so and for you as a producer are you uh like are you still doing as much stuff or have i mean i, I know the tv things sort of took over for a while and 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 that we haven't talked about that either but uh just like as a as a working producer is that something that you're still like really super interested in or absolutely it's it's yeah. what i do it's what i do actually every day of my life on yeah. something or other i'm always my wife built us a studio and uh um and uh i'm, I'm talking to you i'm talking to you from there now and you know i i love it here and it's it's uh it's just, it's like, it is a dream come true. We, we spent, uh, uh, we've been in our, in our place for 17 years and we spent the first, first 15 of them looking into our backyard and dreaming. And that's where I'm sitting right now. So, uh, so done actually a lot. We did, uh, um, you know, uh, last year did, uh, the Blackie and the Rodeo Kings record top to tail here. I did a record for a great guy from, from British Columbia, a one man band named, uh, David Boxcar Gates. Oh yeah, and, and that isn't out yet, but it's a great record. We did uh, did uh, Bruce Coburn, uh, the instrumental album. We did uh, all of the overdubs and we mixed it here, mm-hmm. and uh, and had a wonderful time doing that. Spent a few weeks working with Lucinda Williams, uh, doing essentially demos for what are her new album. But it, those demos ended up being side four on the vinyl version of her new album. Oh, cool. So did that, and then uh, did an album for an artist from Spain named uh, Virginia Maestro. Um, that's a, a beautiful record. Uh, and uh, I think I mentioned to you a young artist uh, named Olivia Wolf, yep. uh, who uh, I've been working with a tremendous amount in the last eight or nine months. Um, you know, so it's been busy. I did, I did an album for another singer from BC named Karin Fader, uh, who's very, very good. And... Uh, uh, so it's been, you know, I've been working, thank heaven, pretty well every day that I'm home. Yeah, yeah. I did an acoustic album for Charles Eston, an acoustic EP for Charles Eston, who is the male lead of the Nashville television show. Yeah, you've been work- doing a ton of stuff with him over the years. I yeah, think, so. yeah. With all the people from from the show. Uh, it's really most, turned I mean, into a most thing. Most of the people. Oh, it's been wonderful. It's That's very much like family to me. Those yeah. guys, I love them all so much. So. Well, yeah, man. <laughs> Listen, I'm sorry, I'm such a blabbermouth, Steve. No, it's great. That's that's the whole point of this, and 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 I love uh, having you. And I, and I do feel like there's a ton of stuff that we didn't touch on, which I'm I feel bad about. But uh, it's great to just hear some of this stuff and and crack open a few a few of these boxes. So maybe we'll you know we'll we'll catch up again and do it later if it's not too well, painful. It, it's a funny thing because a lot of the stuff that we talked about is stuff that I haven't really talked about with people before. So it's been interesting, you know. You know, about the early days in Toronto, especially, I think about it a lot these days as, you know, as we lose people like John Prine, you know, it's heartbreaking as it is, you know, uh, there's so many, so many happy memories of that period of time in music was such a wonderful time. And so it was kind of nice, kind of therapeutic to talk about it. Oh, good. Okay, well, thanks, Colin. We'll get to see each other when people are allowed to see each other again. (laughs) I'm sure we will. Yeah. Uh, All right, man. Take care. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Colin Linden. I hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back in two weeks from today for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I very much hope to see you then.
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.